we must together work together to see where we are, where we are headed, where we are going, and our vision for where we should be, but also see it as a moment, yes, to together address the challenges and to work on the opportunities. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety Program. I'm Josh Holmes, along with Comfortably Smug, Michael Duncan, and John Ashbrook. Welcome to a big Thursday edition. Full crew. A full crew. Back for the first time in a while. In a while. It's been like two weeks since all of us have been in studio. Well, it's nice to see you, fellas. Yeah. It's nice to see you. Uh, We got a lot lot to talk about today. Uh, We've got a great guest. First of all, NBA player Jonathan Isaac is with us today. You might remember him. First of all, he's a first-round draft pick. Uh, hell of a basketball player. I went to Florida State, uh, drafted by the Orlando Magic. Um, and, he I mean, look, he's a legitimately great basketball player. Where he became super noteworthy is he was the one NBA basketball player to stand during the national anthem when everyone else kneeled uh, in that season when they were in the bubble down in Disney World. Yeah. Um, he's since written a book and uh, can't wait to talk about it. I've read it. Um, he's like a really super incredible guy for a whole host of reasons. I can't wait to hear that interview. Um, <clears throat> can we talk a little bit about uh, the elections on Tuesday? Uh, because, you know, our sponsor predicted. Uh, I feel like got a lot of traffic going over this one. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. Did you make any money, fellas? I mean, so so my thing was is I didn't think, and and this is my fault. I didn't think there'd be a market because like a lot of the polling showed, like especially I think it was was it an official statement put out by Purdue's campaign or was it on background someone from his camp saying that like I don't think we're gonna lose by thirty points, guys. Come on. (laughs) No, he said it on the record. He said, "Oh, right. Okay, so good guy. It was that bad. He ended up losing by fifty-two. So I was like, I don't think there's even gonna be a market in this." But apparently they had markets where you could, you know, wager the margin. Yeah, on on that big of a margin, and I wish I would have I would have had faith. I should have known. Predict it's got the market. Well, so I there was an interesting market that I was in, which was the um, which of these Trump candidates gets the lowest vote share in the May primaries. A very specific that's prop an, market. Yeah, wow. You know, I love prop markets. Yeah. Oh, that's a good that's one. A good you one. know, and so. Uh, Charles Herbster in Nebraska had gotten 30%, which seemed like I thought to be like the basement floor. Yeah, right. You know, and so I had some on him and I had a little bit on on Mo Brooks because like Brooks is in a three-way. But didn't that that get pulled out of it when Trump rescinded his endorsement? No, he he was still in the market. He was still in the market. Yeah, yeah, because technically he had received the endorsement. Okay, all right. So he was still in the market. Uh, David Perdue won this market, wow. which I definitely did not see come out. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew a, like basically right. a one-on-one. It, well, the, and that was my logic, right? It was like, all right, well, I'm going to keep some on Herbster uh, because 30 seems like a floor to me. And there was four candidates that were viable. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. And 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 Mo Brooks is in like a legit three-way race. Yeah. You know, so I think he could 
squeeze out above 30, but maybe he's, but definitely not Purdue on a one-on-one is going to get lower than 30. (laughs) And then he did it. And then he did it. Yikes. That was an ass kicking, uh, like I have not seen in a long time. Well, and like, look, I think it personally, I think it was well-deserved because I mean, like, look, governor Kemp, love him or hate him. Uh, the guy's got balls. The well, guy's got balls to run to run after you know so many um, you know conservative influencers, quote unquote thought leaders, uh, the former president. Everybody's up his ass in Georgia, and he's like, "No, you know what? I'm going to run again." And not only am I going to run again, I'm going to build a resume of success. And the first thing I'm going to do is, I don't know, voter integrity. Yeah, like right. like going right, running right at the hardest fucking issue takes balls. It yeah. takes huge ones. Can I offer an observation here? Brian Kemp was always the base candidate. Dude, he's despite at, despite right. despite everything that you read in the liberal media. Remember that Brian Kemp came onto the stage on the back of a pickup truck holding a shotgun. Right. He was the base candidate and always was. Mm-hmm. David Perdue, God love him, lives behind three gates at Sea Island. <laughs> right. Beautiful place. Brian Kemp was always the base candidate. Right. Well, I just never saw, like, what was the argument of David Perdue's campaign? It was just just a a retribution. It was retribution. It was was a retribution candidacy. He had no justification whatsoever that he ever articulated other than the fact that Trump was mad at Kemp. Right. And so being a friend of Trump's, he runs against Kemp without any justification from the electorate whatsoever. Right. Right. And it turns out that like voters actually care what you've accomplished and and your message and your justification for why you're running. Well, and that's the thing that I think the journos contribute to this idiocy. The simplification of politics. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's as if like if you were to read if you were to know nothing about Republican politics whatsoever and you were to read your average New York Times, Politico, Washington Post piece you would literally think that Republicans only care about what Donald Trump thinks about something, as if there's no principle behind how you became a Republican in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Like life doesn't matter, limited government doesn't matter. You know, n- none of the stuff, none of the stuff that goes into being a Republican actually matters. It's just like what Donald Trump says. They they would have you believe that. Now Donald Trump knows that's not true, right? Right? Like it's not like a mystery that people have core values and they vote upon those core values. Now, more often than not, they align with one person or another, but it's it's ridiculous to assume. And now we've seen play out in successive weeks that people just sort of vote based upon any name you put up there that has an endorsement. Well, and so, I mean, the Donald, Donald Trump endorsement, of course, like it matters. It matters to a oh, lot of totally. voters and it's a valuable endorsement. I guess it's like a seal of approval. Right. 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 It's a seal of approval. And for a lot of voters, that makes a big difference. But ultimately, it, it, your values also have to align. Well, it, well, and in this particular circumstance, the Georgia governor's race, it was an endorsement of a 2020 grievance. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing in the electorate is that Republican voters, even Republican Trump voters, Republican MAGA voters, in Republican primaries would like to know more about what you're going to do to fight inflation. Yeah. That you're going to fight the issues that we care about rather than relitigating 2020. Well, it's the real, it's the real danger that a lot of candidates have. And if you get sucked into a conversation that's retrospective, there's never been a Republican party that supports retrospective 
uh, campaigning. There just isn't. Everyone is proactive. Like it's a you know George H W Bush didn't campaign on what he did for Ronald Reagan in 1990. You know I mean he just in '88 he didn't. You know he could have, but he didn't. He was always forward looking. If you're going to be successful, you have to tell people what it is that you plan to do to fight the Biden administration. Right. Which, you know, I, I don't think Purdue did in any form or fashion. No, no. It's, it's probably explains a lot of the Ron DeSantis phenomenon. Totally. Because here's a guy who's sticking up for all of the problems that Republican primary it's voters current. see in front of their face. Yeah. Very yeah, exactly. current. There's also, I mean, look, there's interesting results. I, I was really surprised to see uh, Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state there, that it was sort of like the focus point of all conservative ire and the irregularities that were that came after the Georgia election. Um, He had a formidable opponent, Jody Bice, who Trump endorsed, and it was thought to be a serious campaign that was inevitably going to go to a runoff, right? Right. Because in Georgia, if you don't hit 50% in this primary, you go to a runoff with the top two candidates. Thought that was just inevitable. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. He got 52. Um, Wild, right? Yeah, it was very wild. And I think think that sent a message as much as the the uh, spread on the governor's race. Yeah, it was interesting. I think philosophically, it's kind of like the way to look at a Trump endorsement. I I think the problem here is that the media thinks, oh, it's because their whole narrative is believing that, you know, they even say that Trump is a cult. You know, these are mindless people. Yeah, they have no way to relate to us, so they have to assume that. Exactly. So, So they're like, oh, this is a cult. So his endorsement means you have to vote for who gets the Trump endorsement. It's like, no, the idea is that like, okay, if you have two people who you see is equal, then yeah. Then it makes a difference. Is is the decision maker. But if you pick a candidate, right, it's not like you're going to pick for someone who you don't like because they have the Trump endorsement. That doesn't make sense. And I don't know why, you know, reporters can't understand that. It's like it's democracy, right? I mean, but you saw, like, look, I, I think ultimately what happens in Pennsylvania it looks to me like Oz is going to win, right? Yeah. It's still yeah. in legal battles, and but it, it looks to me like Oz is going to win. That's an example of what you're talking about, yeah. Smug, where you've got two candidates that people have sized up and think like, yeah, you know, either one of these guys looks pretty good to me. The Trump endorsement matters. Like, do yeah. I think that Oz wins that primary without the Trump endorsement? I don't think so. Do well, you? The tri- well, you know, McCorm- the McCormick team was attacking Oz for um, because he wasn't conservative. They were saying he wasn't conservative enough. They were saying he wasn't he wasn't behind Trump enough. And then Trump comes in and endorses Oz, and then all of the criticisms that were coming Oz's way were erased. Yeah, and, well, and I know. I think it made it made the difference, and yeah, Ohio is very similar, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, JD was sort of in that middle pack of contenders in a five-way race, and that endorsement made a big difference yeah. there. Yeah, it, it totally right? differentiated. But Georgia was not the only race last night. No, there were actually several others. Uh, interestingly, in Arkansas, uh, current Senator uh, Bozeman was thought to be locked into a pretty significant primary down there with a young, pretty attractive candidate. His name, Jake... Uh, Beckett or something? What yeah, was he was an NFL football player yeah. um, for the Patriots. You know, like, look, an attractive candidate. for, for And they thought it was going to be a big, you know, really close race that potentially could get to runoff territory itself. Not the case. A total blowout on that one. I mean, that was 30-plus points, right? Yeah, yeah. So, again, I think more an overemphasis on Republican primary fighting here. Seems to me when you have a 30-point race, 
that's probably not as close <laughs> or is ever as close. You know, it's bizarre because I don't remember opening the newspaper recently and, and thinking, man, there's a there's an overemphasis on Democrat Party infighting. Well, it's it's, yeah. fu- it's funny you mentioned that, Ashbrook, because this is a totally underreported story. And I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners don't I have no idea this is happening. But Sean Patrick yeah. Maloney, who's the head of the DCCC right now has been district shopping. Yeah. Like it is wild. Like this like like this this is the guy whose job it is to keep Electric their house colleagues. majority and because of redistricting, he's now having to shop around for a district and everyone's like don't run against me here dude, what the fuck? <laughs> well then you he, know? he picks one of his colleagues. Right. It's incredible. It's incredible. It, it's the most wild Dem infighting I think I've ever seen in this town and like nobody's talking about it. Of course. Of not. course not. Really incredible. Uh, Also in Alabama, and you heard from one of the candidates on the Variety program, Katie Britt, who finished first in that primary um, yesterday. It's going to go to a a runoff uh, against uh, Mo Brooks, who, as you mentioned earlier, famously was endorsed and then unendorsed by by President Trump. The, uh, The guy Mike Durant, who was also in that race, I think he was made famous by the movie Black Hawk Down. Uh, came in a, a pretty distant third. Forever, that race seemed like a three-way lockup. Uh, it seems like it's spread out at the end. Katie Britt's got a pretty significant advantage going into that that runoff. But again, all really interesting results. Well, and we're breaking midterm turnout records, in particular in Georgia, where the Democrats said we passed Jim Crow 2.0. Oh, I thought Jim Crow took care yeah. of the turnout. So Republican turnout is just shattering, shattering records, which we love to see. But as Smug always says, do not rest on our laurels. Yeah. You know, we have to turn out in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it, it, it's a lot of tea leaves to read, but not in the way that the media is trying to spin it. Uh, number one, the media spent a year shoving down this whole like uh, Stacey Abrams, who, who has a dark money group pushing the idea yeah. that voters are being disenfranchised right. when you're getting a record turnout. And then she comes out or, and the media runs cover for her saying, well, we don't know yeah. if, if this might be record turnout because people knew it's right because it's, be it's a non like, non falsifiable theory. It, it makes no know? sense. But the actual the fact of the matter is you're seeing uh, number one, like uh, were any insurgent candidates winners on Tuesday? Well, there could have been some down ballot stuff, but I'm not aware. I mean, like the attorney general in Georgia won by a huge number. Yeah, it was a good night for incumbents. Yeah, for sure. that's the thing. So to me, it strikes as like, and you're getting record Republican turnout. Yeah, this is energy that's focused with Republicans aiming at the Biden agenda. That's right. It. That's what it's saying is that this party is united around you know our core values. That's motivating the people and are enraged at what's going on in this country because of Joe Biden. And and they're going to hold the Dems accountable for that. In it's a hundred. What you just said is a hundred percent accurate. Right. I mean, that is the message you take out of Tuesday: is that unless you are focused on what Joe Biden and his cohorts in Congress are doing to this country, you got a really tough day. You can have a really tough. Primary. And that's my message to President Donald Trump if he decides to run for president again: is that if he makes his central to his campaign twenty twenty and not twenty twenty four, he's not going to do as well. Yeah. He will do much better in that primary if he runs for president again, if he talks about what Joe Biden is doing and how he plans to fix it. Yeah. And because we saw here a case study in David Perdue of what you do, what happens to you when you run a grievance campaign about 2020. Totally. You get your fucking doors blown off. Yeah. I mean, this this guy was an incumbent senator two years ago. Right. Right. I mean, this is it's embarrassing. Totally blown his doors off. Um, 
All right, let's get to some more uh, somber news. Uh, we got to cover. I know we like to do a lot of laughs on this show, but this is not a laughing matter in any form or fashion. Uh, it's the the Texas shooting. Um, obviously, a horror that you know anybody who's a parent, obviously, you're listening to it. Like it stops your day, it stops your week. You know, you just you can't think about anything else. But <clears throat> we'd be remiss if we also didn't point out what a disgusting display of immediate politics that were played by this, by yeah. both Democrats and the media hand in hand simultaneously, right? Right. I mean, they were still hauling children out of the school when the media is badgering Republican senators about what they're gonna do on gun control. They don't even know the facts of the case. They don't even know who this kid was, what he was doing, and all of a sudden, they're just playing straight politics. Yeah, and Chris Murphy's like on the floor of the Senate screaming at people. And and, and they used Chris Murphy, who's been a longtime proponent of just straight gun confiscation. Yeah. Right? But they used him to lead all these articles as if he was a voice of reason. This is He's the single most extreme anti-Second Amendment person in Congress. Mm-hmm. This is not somebody who's a deal maker, right? But they've sort of framed him as though... Here's this guy who like wants to get something no, serious. This is done. how they shift the Overton window on issues like the Second Amendment. Yeah, I mean he he's as crazy as it gets on this stuff. The only person who's crazier is the one who yesterday beclowned himself in a way that I I, I literally can't even put into words. You're gonna have to listen to this yourself. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. I'm sure you are out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick son of a bitch that would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. So Beto O'Rourke marches into an official Texas government press conference, tries to interrupt the governor with this grandstanding about how he's responsible for the deaths of these children who you saw yelling or who you heard yelling over top calling him a sick son of a bitch and telling him to leave the auditorium was the mayor of Uvalde, the town of which this elementary school was in. You could see all of the elected officials and, and, and all of the law enforcement. Like these are not partisan people. We're just totally disgusted. Yeah, it is. It is disgusting. I mean, Beto, you know, I mean, he kind of came to fame doing this sort of like just play acting bullshit, though, you know, like jumping on top of tables and, you know, cutting cute videos and raising a lot of money on Act Blue to lose by 20 points is sort of like his whole M.O. And so, I mean, I'm not surprised by it. It is sad. It's the worst. Yeah. It's the worst. You had, you had, I, I mean, I don't know who all was in that audience. I got to imagine there are people, it's community seems pretty small to me. Right. It, 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 like family of you yes, know, it, kids who, who were murdered. And here's a guy who's trying to give a 20 second stump speech for the cameras, which by the way, all the cameras diligently panned right. to Beto O'Rourke. And, and they followed, followed him, him outside. Followed and him outside. And let him give us, like, the, the, it's horrific in how tasteless it is because he took this and he made it about him. You know it's not about policy because it's not like he he, he tried to uh, begin a effort to bring policymakers and legislators together and come up with an idea for how he wants to effectuate change. It's because he showed up and he, he wanted to uh, 
become a spectacle at this event for attention. I mean, that's the thing is it's and to raise money, probably, exactly. It's, right? it's to bring in money for his campaign, which it's, I mean, it's, it's tough as for if him. he hasn't gotten enough liberal wine mom money. Well, that's the right. thing, you know, is, and he hasn't lost enough elections. He's lost a couple elections already fleecing them. So, so of course this third time, it's like, you know, fool me once, you know, shame <laughs> on you, fool me twice. <laughs> now he's going for the third time. So yeah. it's been tough. He has to do these things. And that's why he did it. It's it's a stunt. It's all about Beto. He's trying to make this tragedy about himself. It's 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 so it's so ugly. I mean, there there are nineteen children who are dead, which I can barely get myself to look at the pictures of these poor kids. I mean, they're fourth graders, right? And look, if this if this, if it doesn't do anything to you when you hear about stuff like this, like you don't have a heartbeat, right? To immediately think. I know what I'm going to do is try to grandstand and make this a political issue that I can raise some money off of. You're the worst person in the world. Right. And it's also, it's, it's a problem of like the now lib culture of being too online of like, Oh, okay. Uh, voters must be like what the libs who cheer for me on, on Twitter. Like, like do not use that as your pulse for where Americans, American voters you know their opinions lie because you're you're basically left-wing twitter is the craziest place on earth it's basically like you know late night writers for shows that get a tenth of the viewers that fox news does right and so they have to drop takes to try to be funny and be relevant and and i saw some of them they, the, the most disgusting thing i saw was they found a parent of one of the children who had been murdered Oof. and they were like i went through his facebook and he supported kyle rittenhouse he deserves this are you, are you kidding, kidding me? I'm dead serious. I'm I mean, dead these, serious. Peop- these people are soulless. And so that's what I mean. Is like they want to, they're, they're all concerned about just like, because they're a group of completely demented people, right? So they're just trying to like impress each other for attention. So they have to do this outrageous stuff. And, and, and that's what it leads to. It leads to a guy jumping into a room where parents are getting information about this horror that happened in their town. And he jumps into that, makes a spectacle. Then he goes outside for a bunch of journalists, and he he has his little stump speech because it's about him. Oh God, I don't even know yeah. how to read. I mean, the fury that that has. Oh, but you know, look. You also what what the media has done here. Let me back up. Immediately, every talking point from the media and from Democrats are, well, there's a whole bunch of. You know, factors in every other country. We're the only country that has school shootings, and their inferences. We're the, also the only country with Second Amendment rights, right? So that's like their talking point to try to get us in the mindset of, all right, we need to take everybody's guns away, right? Essentially, and they keep saying that. Well, you know, we're we're also the only country whose media descends on a tragedy like this and sends up boom mics into parents' faces and covers a killer, an absolute scum-of-the-earth piece of garbage like he's a celebrity. Right. We know his whole life story. Probably have his manifesto out there by now. You know, and if you back up to, like, the shooting in Buffalo mm-hmm. and the guy who live-streamed the whole thing and, and you know, spoke about what he was going to do and all this stuff, like, clearly somewhere in the recesses of his fucked-up brain, he's thinking he's going to get famous off of this. Yeah. And if you think about... There's a lot of evidence to show that he is correct, th- which is your that's point. What I, that's my point. Right. My, my point is, when the fuck are we going to stop covering these things as though 
it's a celebrity event. Yeah. You know, like thoughts and prayers, you know, bullshit. Like that's not the way that you cannot have a tragedy of this magnitude and immediately think like, well, let's cover the shit out of this. Like, this you know what I, you ratings. know what I go back to, um, is, do you remember when Rolling Stone put the Boston bomber on the cover yeah. of yeah. the magazine? Yeah. That's the sort of shit I think about. Like how many sick people do you think that inspired to know, you know, I mean, I get my face on a magazine. Sick stuff. It's sick. sick stuff. It's sick stuff. But then, you know, ultimately they get into a point where they know that's a 50 50 Senate here. They know that there are Second Amendment supporters that are half of the Senate, including, you know, multiple Democrats, allegedly. I mean, and you know, Joe Manchin at some level is certainly to the right of where most Democrats are. They, my point is they know they don't have the votes right. to do the, you know, like gun confiscation plans, right? But that's all that they can talk about. So much so that they eliminate every other solution. Yeah, exa- yeah, it's ex- exactly right. I mean, Ron Johnson went to the Senate floor yeah. on Wednesday afternoon and asked for consent to start talking about school safety and figuring out a way to harden schools and add more cops and add barriers and things that might prevent a disaster like this from happening in the future. And no Democrat would even consider talking about it. It was immediately obje- drew an objection from Schumer without any explanation or justification for why just in a straight objection just a straight objection and then and then if you go upstairs to the press on the third floor none of them are writing it from that perspective there's there's no there's no even-handed way of looking at this they're they're all they all have a solution in their minds and they think that this that they're right and everybody else is wrong well you know what i think that a lot of parents who send their kids to school every day would like to think that there's as much security protecting their kids as there is protecting politicians in Washington. Well, it's just such a no-brainer. It's and a no-brainer. If, remember- if, if we can protect federal buildings, uh, if we can protect airports, we should be able to protect schools. I, so I remember, I don't forget which horrible shooting it was. God bless it, there's been way too many. Um, but I was on Fox News Sunday, and I remember Wallace pushing me on, well, what would you do? If you're not going to be in the, you know, any sort of gun control business, what would you do? I was like, well, you know, I think it's... I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Like, first of all, why don't you have perimeters around these schools? Harden them. Make sure that any cars or people that go in and out have to go through a single entrance and they are checked and they have authorization and they have all that, you know, like that's a bare minimum for me. But then I think honestly, just to even for like non, you know, active shooter cases, it would be nice that, you know, we are aware who the hell is on property with with children. Right. Like, Like just from a child safety point of view. Like, Not a bad that, practice to begin sure, with. Yeah, checkpoint sounds like a great idea. What is your business being here with all these kids? If I can't walk into the Hart Senate office building without being accosted by four different cops and, and mags and everything else, why is it that you can just walk into an elementary school unmolested right and that's not what happened to be clear that's not what happened here it was not unmolested there was a guard and they did exchange fire and it's a tragic situation but clearly the security wasn't adequate or this would not have happened and i guess my larger point is we just allocated billions billions of dollars of covid money to improve our schools dude the allocated it's not spent. That's the, de- the Department of Education says that over $100 billion from the $2 trillion COVID package remains unspent sitting in accounts idling. 
I mean, why can't they put that money into hardening billion. schools? A hundred billion dollars. Hundred billion. We're all paying. You could it. rebuild we're, every school. We're, we're, we're all. We could have Blackwater outside every school. <laughs> They've authorized CRT teaching, right? We've got. We've spent this money on the dumbest shit in the history of the world, and yet that money sits there right now. And I will guarantee. I'll personally guarantee that if any Republican senator went down to the floor and asked for a resolution to urge all of the local communities to use that money to harden perimeters around their school, a Democrat would object. Yeah, and and, you know, one of the arguments they make is kids don't want to see security rolling around their school. Do you know what really makes kids upset when they feel like they're alone? When they feel like they're locked in their classroom with their teacher and they don't know who, what's coming through the door. I don't know. I think they'd be happier seeing police officers in drag queen you, story you, hour. Like, the, the, if we're talking about what kids don't want to see. Oh, uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> right? Great point. Decent point. Anyway, we'll get off of that. I know that that's... But look, it's on everybody's mind. So we we have to talk about it. We'll keep updated on how this whole thing goes. But we got to get into some lighter stuff where everybody's going to cry themselves to sleep tonight. Uh, we have a monkeypox update. Critical update. A critical monkeypox update. Uh, on Tuesday's show, we discussed uh, where does the monkey come from? We, from we monkey wanted pox? to know. So, you know. Oh, this is like an om- ombudsman? Ombudsman McDaniel yeah. got the facts. So it, what is it? It says here, monkeys are not a main reservoir. That's the natural source of the virus. Contrary to the name, <laughs> is believed African rodents serve as the actual reservoir. The virus is found in Gambian po- uh, pouch rats, dormice, and African squirrels. The use of these animals as food may be an important source of transmission to humans. Oh. Humans can be infected by an animal via bite or by direct contact with an infected animal's bodily fluids. Mo- gosh, uh, this disease stuff. Monkeypox disease is similar to smallpox, though not directly related, but with a milder rash and a lower mortality rate. Okay. What that doesn't explain a damn thing for me. Yeah, I mean, so... So I, do you have to bang a monkey or not? I guess the monkeys ate the rats. Who knows? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's what it is. I think it's that the monkeys eat the rats... And then they get the monkey pox. No banging of the monkey. And you don't have to. It doesn't preclude it. <laughs> like you, you could. It's you possible. Could, you could get the pox by banging the monkey. I'm here. I, I I'm reading here again. Infected animals bodily fluids. <laughs> oh Jesus. Which McDaniel included in there? I of think course he needs, precisely he, 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 for he this needs reason. To cause trouble. Yeah. It says. Uh, meanwhile, four in ten Americans are concerned about monkey pox. The poll started on Friday evening Come and was on. still being conducted on Sunday when President Joe Biden called monkeypox, quote, something that everybody should be concerned about. Awareness, concern, and expectation of a surge were all higher on Monday, the day after Biden's remarks. There's like a perfect overlap of the wine mom lib well, but the, with, with, it's, with the, it's also It's also the way, you know these polls. You know the way this works. It's like the pollster is, you're crea- it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're creating the demand for for people to be scared of it by asking people the question. Okay. Are you are you scared of monkeypox? No, I'm not scared. If I don't know shit, yeah, I'm still going to be scared. It's called monkeypox. <laughs> you know, I'm picturing monkeys throwing their feces at me and it's pox. Like, I don't have to know anything about monkeypox to be concerned about it. It's right there in the name, monkeypox. That's why I say the only polls I trust are early exits on that list. <laughs> <laughs> <the only> <laughs> well, we're going to uh, go with a little different order of things. We had to get some serious stuff in the monkeypox out of the way before we get to our five stars. But, fellas, I feel like we haven't done these in a while. We so haven't. I want to do the first one this is yeah this is an amazing okay. you're on it so this is from j steph 1987 it says any advice on battling marauding horses 
Fellas, I'm a recent convert to the program, and it's now the first thing I listen to on Tuesdays and nice. Thursdays. Thanks for all that you do to own the libs. I had a fantastic experience recently and wanted to get your take on how you would proceed with this animal encounter. My family was camping on a beach known for having wild horses, and as advertised, the first night we were there, three wild horses showed up at the camp next to us. Like yogi after picnic basket, <laughs> these things helped themselves to the dinner being prepared by the nice folks next to us, who looked on helplessly. Hungry for more mischief and probably our s'mores, the horses turned to our camp. Oh, no. Luckily, my Rhodesian Ridgeback, oh, who wow. have never run with a day in his life, <laughs> lost his ever-loving mind. I wonder why. That's why. They go crazy if you don't run them like a marathon a day. <laughs> if you don't run this them. review has everything for you. <laughs> lost his ever-loving mind and convinced them to move on in search of easier prey. I couldn't help but wonder, though, if my dog hadn't saved the day, what is the best way to fight off a horse? I doubt I could punch one hard enough to make a difference. And I certainly want to avoid the teeth and proverbial donkey kick. <laughs> Any sage advice on best practices? Thanks and keep up the good work. So here's my advice. So when we discuss what animal could you take, that's typically like, you know, a setup of like unarmed combat, you know, one-on-one if it comes down to it. It was what, what's the largest animal you yeah. could take. Yeah, so if it's, 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 it's one-on-one, you know, that's, a, that's an unarmed situation. If this is like, you know, how do I defeat horse and you're, you're in this like camp situation, it's not like you're looking, you're not looking for a fair fight here, right? You want a foreign object. Yeah. Number one, you want to grab something, you know, something sturdy. And and these horses, like I tell you, they are the dumbest animals, (laughs) right? In front of people who they don't know, they don't know the situation, you know, they'll be down there trying to eat a s'more or something. Just wallop them. It's like, enjoy the s'mores. It's your last one, friend. But it sounded like he was coming after the food fairly aggressively. Yeah. I mean, if he's down there eating food, it's, it's, it's a giveaway, you know, like he's ready to go. Like, it, this is a dumb horse, you know? It's not a very serious animal if they're willing to, like, you know, very serious animals know if you're around predators or, like, a deadly environment, you know, you're careful, like, nature gives them things like camouflage or, like, you know, some skills to avoid a situation. Some Horses skills. have been bred by humans, and this is what we get. They're, like, you know, just dumb dogs. Well, to, 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 to that point, and Smug is correct, they are pretty dumb animals. Um, if you are preparing a lunch feast here, a nice picnic, if you happen to have a plastic bag, oh. horses are terrified of pra- plastic what bags. What do you mean? Point. Yeah. Just sort of crunch, really? yeah, cr- crunch it up, sk- yeah, that's, shake it, shake it, throw it at them. Yeah. Wait, this is a real thing? This is a real thing. I thought you were going to say put it over its snout. Oh, no. <laughs> Suffocate the horse. That's what I thought you were first going. Suffocate like, the horse. That's a play. Get on its back and put the bag over its that's face. That's a tough deal. Yeah. I mean, you could probably take one down that way, too. Yeah. Wouldn't recommend it. I just shake the plastic bag. Just give it a shake and off it goes? Yeah. Well, that is a handy tip. You you can either scare it off or you can go for the kill shot. It's up to you. Yeah, (laughs) or a kick to the ribs, (laughs) as Smug has often done. All right, we got another one. Uh, You want this one, Dogs? Uh, Sure. This one is from Put This Name on My Reviews. (laughs) Uh, Each banger of an episode helps me bang out some chores. Uh, It says, I am a stay-at-home mom, and I love it but have never been good at or enjoyed the housekeeping part of it. I find most household chores boring, tedious, and endless. Me too. Yeah. I hear you on that. Yeah. I used to catch uh, your podcast when I could, but had trouble making the time for it. A few weeks weeks ago, I started listening to it while folding laundry. It made the time pass so quickly, and dare I say, even made the task grasp, gasp enjoyable. Oh, that's it, great. It is now my regular treat to myself for all the mundanity of my work day. From doing the dishes to power washing the deck. Oh. If, if only you did episodes every day, 
I'd have the cleanest house on the block. Thank you for keeping me motivated, informed, and perhaps most importantly, able to laugh at the absurd times we live in. Listen, lady, wow. I want to thank you know, from your husband for yeah. this situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Handling the power washing of the deck. The power washing of the deck? I feel like you've gone way beyond the uh, household responsibilities here. But that, that is also like a super satisfying chore like the before and after even in the process yeah, it does look different of power washing oh yeah it's like i am affecting yeah change <laughs> it's like immediately it's like you bleach it there's nothing better than you see like that first line of dirt yeah kind of come right up come it. right off it yeah you yeah. love it yeah you love yeah, to see it satisfying uh let's give the deep voice fellas a shot at one <laughs> okay this is from mark todd 945 and his <sighs> subject line is you don't have to go to idaho to get out of nova northern virginia fellow conservative turned me on to you recently and i can't thank him enough and you guys enough finally folks in a younger age group than me channeling my political thoughts and giving them a voice your inside knowledge critical thinking and great interviews coupled with a rapid fire banter and no holds barred crapping on the heads of the brain dead marxists (laughs) in addition to kangaroo punning warms my heart and brings a smile twice a week all this fosters hope for our country you also don't have to enlarge your carbon footprint and make John Kerry <laughs> sad by flying to Idaho to get out of the great state of Nova to hunt turkeys and shoot guns. We'll, we've got plenty of room in our family farm down here in southwest Virginia. Oh, lovely. Just a couple of hours away. Come on down and burn some powder. Just be sure Smug has his rabies shots first. <laughs> I would 100% take him up on that. I, yeah, after, seriously. After that fly fishing trip, I was told by by a couple of guys there that there's some good fly fishing in Virginia. So I, I'm putting a kit together. I'd be more than happy to shoot guns Oh, man. Here. We need to get oh, some yeah. more info from this dude. That sounds yeah. excellent. Yeah, Mark Todd, 945. What a guy. Um, all right. Let's tie this back into our current events. We talked about the COVID money being squandered in the education area. It turns out it's being squandered basically everywhere. This is according to Fox News. You're kidding. Millions from Biden's COVID relief went to museum, university programs to push social and climate justice. Mm. $50,000 in the American Rescue Plan funds were awarded to the Northern Mariana Islands nonprofit to teach indigenous canoe building important work there yeah they did they didn't know how to do that yeah I, yeah no, they, it, they got a handle on that isn't that isn't that what why it's indigenous canoe building because they <laughs> know how it's indigenous uh, whatever uh dozens of cultural and educational institutions spent millions of taxpayer dollars in president biden's 1.9 trillion dollar covid relief package to fund programs pushing cl- social and climate justice that my friends is is like what you listen for right climate justice what? Yeah. yeah, so next time you pay out the nose for a loaf of bread or a dozen eggs, you can thank climate justice. That's just climate it's just dollars. climate justice. And if you if you oppose that, you're some sort of racist. You might be a white supremacist that's if you probably want cheap right. gas. That's you don't believe in climate justice. White supremacy. It's just so cool, dude. It's so <laughs> these Democrats are so cool. I mean, they basically held your toddlers hostage in a fucking mask saying we need more money we can't reopen these schools unless we get more money and then this is what they're spending it on and then they pay it on uh, play on this climate justice climate justice if you have a liberal friend who is in any way reasonable any way reasonable send this to them yeah and say how can you vote for these people 
The National Endowment for the Humanities received $135 million from this plan announced last October that it had allocated $87.8 million in uh, these relief funds to nearly 300 cultural and educational institutions to help them recover from the economic impact of the pandemic, retain, rehire workers, reopen sites, facilities, and programs. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I I don't think that's what the money went for. What do you think it went for? Well, it says here that, for instance, $499,023 went to the University of Montana for programs on racial justice, including public lecture series on racial justice, death, and indigenous knowledge. You know what I like? Montana is getting like that now? You know what I like about this? this, uh, Because I assume there was some sort of grant request. There's some sort of like whole like um, Rube Goldberg experiment of like nonprofits and groups that has to go through to get this money. Um, I like that the grant requested $499,023, not half a million dollars. No, not four hundred ninety-nine thousand dollars. It was twenty. That twenty-three dollars was critical in the fight against racial or for racial justice and the death of indigenous knowledge. Well, <laughs> here's here's they're, they're like they're like if we put four ninety-nine twenty-three, they'll they'll take it really seriously because they know we didn't pull it out of our ass. Yeah. you know, it's a very specific number. Here's here's another <laughs> like grant fraud tip one hundred one. Here's another example of that, and this is one that's near and dear to Smug's heart. Uh, four hundred seventy-one thousand nine hundred five dollars. Nine hundred and five to the Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh. Now, Carnegie Institute. I might be wrong, but isn't that named for Andrew Carnegie? <laughs> Seems like so, cash shouldn't be a problem. There. Yeah. So why are they getting taxpayer funding? But okay, they they. This is for the ongoing development of an existing exhibit on ancient Egypt. Insane. Oh, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is essential for Pittsburgh. Yes. Families says, trying to recover from the pandemic. It says after the museum had already received $5.8 million in PPP recovery. Wait, $5.8 million in PPP recovery yeah, funds? Yeah. What the fuck is a museum ever getting five point? What is this? Bearing Andrew Carnegie's name. That's oh, the thing. man. Oh, man. Ancient there, Egypt, because the internet doesn't exist. People no, in Pittsburgh. Honestly, there, there, there's like no, none of these places. It, it just blows my mind. That any place like this would get money when, especially in New York, you walk around, billionaires are basically fighting each other to get their names on a wing yeah. of, of, a, of a museum. You know, I don't think it'd be difficult to pick the phone up and be like, hey, you give us, what is it, 499, what, what is it? Uh, yes. $471,905, uh, you can get your name on our museum. Deal. They're like, uh, it'll we, be done. Before you hang up the phone, the wire hit. <laughs> But they, you know what, uh, I don't know if the uh, Science History Institute of Philadelphia would agree because they were awarded $359,097, uh, very, very specific amount of money to create a multi-platform project exploring the historical roots uh, and persistent legacies of racism in American science and medicine. And, and okay, and here's another, here's another thing is, okay, when BLM, the... All these banks, like Bank of America, everyone coughed up million dollar checks to them. Okay, why didn't it go to this? It went to you know, was it a six million dollar mansion that that the director bought out in in L A. Because it was a protection racket. That's why. Because it mean, was a protection that'll racket. That'll tell you. That'll tell you. Because but, the, but the, the science taxpayers are, are paying for this garbage. The Science History Institute of Philadelphia wasn't going to protest on your front yard. That's why. Right <laughs> there, you that, go. That's why. Uh, anyway, you should go through this list that they have on Fox. It's just, just troubling. I mean, 
the fact that we've spent money on this stuff, now you totally understand why it is that we've got such a terrible inflation problem because it's just, it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Well, I'll tell you what, nothing makes me feel better about paying more for bread than knowing that these programs exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Multi-million dollar endowments. So this Insane. one, here's another COVID-related deal, but this one's going to just, I mean, it's going to raise your temperature. It's going to raise your temperature. Uh, this is according to the Washington Post. Uh, remote learning apps shared children's data at a dizzy, dizzying scale. The educational tools used by children during the pandemic shared their information with advertisers and data brokers that could help them track around the web, an international investigation found. Wow. I mean, what in the ever-living hell is this? As if pandemic education wasn't bad enough. Yeah. I mean, I I bet the people who were pirating the data were blown away to see how shitty the curriculum was. I mean, it really is like, pull your kids out of school. Pull them out of school. <laughs> like, smuggle, I, smuggle teach them. I've gotten like so based on this. Like, there's, it's not like a day goes by that you don't find another horrific instance of what has become of schools in this country. Like, like I think, I you know, I don't want to sound like back in my day, but I remember... You, you'd go to a class and they're just teaching you either like English or math or science. And that's about it, man. Like, you know, if you're lucky, you got woodworking, you know, hey, you know, it's not just uh, all history books and math. You can get that. But now at this point where it's like you're on a computer, we've got data trackers on you. Teachers are going to get their money. The teachers unions are sure going to get their money either way. Like the kid is turning into nothing but just like a profit center. Not a student. Well, and it's, it's also a perfect example of the, the, the digital incompetency of the de Democratic Party and basically every one of these leaders in Washington. Because they've spent, like, we just talked about, I guess, maybe Tuesday, about how the D.C. Attorney General was suing over Cambridge Analytica and right, Facebook. Right. Like, something that had been proven false five years ago. Right. You know? And they're focused on, like, ad buys on Facebook and right. shit like that. Just very low knowledge. Meanwhile, level. they're authorizing educational tools that are being entirely pirated by data processing centers right i mean are you kidding me listen to this nearly 90 percent of the educational tools were designed to send the information they collected to ad technology companies which it could use to estimate students interests and predict what they might buy i mean whoa unbelievable whoa. so here's the thing is these are i'm actually reading this article these are being used at public schools that taxpayers are paying for and, and 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 these kids are basically being just used for profit, right? Like, Siph you know, siphon out their data exactly. Yeah. And then they're selling it to to third party groups who who are advertising to these kids. They're turn like uh, if taxpayers are paying for it, no one turns a profit on it. That should basically be how this operates. I thought that was understood. Like there should be investigations into this. this is fucking ridiculous. Totally right. ridiculous. Like the, the teachers and the schools need to be held accountable for this. This is ridiculous. Here is here is one more observation I'd like to offer. Uh, here on the Variety program, we often criticize what's written on the pages of the Washington Post. This story was written in the Washington Post. Yeah. And I just think that every once in a while you see a story that you're like, hmm. That's broken clock. Still a, a rag of a paper. <laughs> broken clock. No, but it, it, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a decent report. I bet it's it because is. Amazon wasn't getting the data and Bezos was like, okay, <laughs> send out the hit. <laughs> well, it turns out Bracket Man has had a tough week again. Uh, you remember we referred to Bracket Man and had a wonderful entry into our five stars from Bracket Woman who served that in, in, during the Trump administration. But they're the people who have to correct, 
the president's remarks when they go off script and yeah. say something. Yeah, the transcript. Right. Right. Um, so speaking Monday in Tokyo, President Biden sent his aides scrambling when he deviated from decades of carefully crafted policy and declared that the United States would defend Taiwan militarily if China attacked it. <laughs> yeah. This is a cost of having a president that's not entirely together. That's the commitment we made, Biden said. Biden's team was quick to claim that the administration policy had not changed, but the movement was reminiscent of two months prior in March when Biden ended his speech in Warsaw by ad-libbing the, the line that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power as Russian's president, which his advisors again raced to walk back. This is a pattern. You know what the scariest part of this pattern is? It always happens overseas. Right, it does. And I wonder if he remembers that this happened. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, that, that was the last one, right? They asked him. They asked him about the remark, and he was like, "What do you mean? I never said that." <laughs> it's, it, it is a little scary when the commander in chief doesn't have a lot of command over his own words. You know, <laughs> right? It's like I mean, he's he's supposed to be the person who's leading our foreign policy, and ideally, some sort of like doctrine of like the way his administration is going to engage in the world, and he has no no idea. I mean, that's the thing is, I think it's pretty clear. The guy is just infected with brain worms. <laughs> but speaking of worms. Oh, uh, wow. Move over parachute spiders. Jumping worms are invading California. Uh, it says they jump and thrash. Destructive Asian jumping worms invade California. It says, People are fleeing California, but the Asian jumping worm, an aggressive species that can jump a foot in the air, a foot in the air, has just arrived. I mean, that is, that's, that, that is absolutely amazing. So the Daily Wire reported this out. And it seems to me that these suckers, they've got they got a pretty good vert. I mean, the, the jumping worm is native to Japan and the Korean Peninsula, but it showed up in American dirt in Wisconsin in 2013, uh, likely after stowing away in potted plants, according mm. to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, <laughs> I like that. In a recent blog post, U.S. Forest Service researcher Matt Callum painted a grim picture of the worm from hell. <laughs> This, I can't imagine like the gates of hell opening and this thing just jumps out. <laughs> it just looks like a big earthworm. This I'm could, looking at pictures right now. Yeah, this could be the opening act to a Holy real life shit. Tremors situation. Yeah. You guys seen the movie Tremors? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Classic. Yeah. That's a scary looking worm, though. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. The vert, like, uh, that thing's only millimeters tall and it's going up a foot. Just wait till it grows. <laughs> so, I didn't know this, guys. Here's the next, next topic. This is an, uh, Deseret Decom. America's untapped strategic cheese reserve. Remember we talked about the uh, syrup, the Canadians with the syrup, which is still on the way, by the way. I uh, I think we got a DM update from our friends in Canada who are going to be providing us some of that strategic reserve. Oh, yes. Nice. Nice. Very nice. Okay. Well, I'd be interested in this, too, although I have my suspicions. So the U.S. government has 1.4 billion pounds of cheese stored in a cave underneath Springfield, Missouri. Hell yeah. Did anybody know this? I did not know this. I'm glad. I'm glad to know. It gives me peace of mind. Well, according to the Washington Post, the U.S. has the largest domestic reserve of cheese of all varieties, including cheddar, Swiss, and American. This is, they've got like a, they have a full platter. This sounds like you could have a hell of a cocktail party down here. Or a fondue party. Or a fondue. You <laughs> so, may wonder why the government has a massive cheese well, stockpile. took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. Well, it started in the 1970s during former president jimmy carter's era and his promise to give farmers a break oh god is that really what this is that is that is so this is what's fascinating so it says 
He wanted to raise the price of milk, but the government couldn't justify, uh, couldn't just buy milk and store it. So it started buying as much cheese as people wanted to sell. Uh, the 1.4 billion pounds of cheese still exists in cold storage holdings, but it is no longer completely owned by the government, but by private companies. The problem of overproduced cheese uh, stayed consistent throughout the years with lower dairy consumption. The government offered again to buy more cheese worth 20 million in 2016. Uh, the Department of Agriculture has not stopped buying just yet. In August of last year, the agency announced the Cheese Purchase Program to buy mozzarella, uh, process and natural American cheese, uh, cheddar cheese for the National School Lunch Program. Oh man, that's rough. They're gonna they turn a profit off these kids, and now they send them government cheese. Wait, <laughs> where 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 is the cheese farm or the cheese storage? Is this in Wisconsin or is Missouri? It, Missouri. It's in Missouri. Okay. I mean, what a racket. What a racket. What you know a what? Racket. We got to clear the schools. We got to clear <laughs> get them the out schools. Of- get rid of all the administrators. Get rid of the unions. Get rid of the teachers. They've turned this into a business. Like, <laughs> think of the margins. You sell the kids data, and then you just feed them government cheese. That's like the biggest <laughs> racket going. They're yeah. worse than the mob. <laughs> terrible. All right. So at long last, fellas, we are going to bring back King of the Hill. All right. So, Smug, who do you have this week for King of the Hill. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the one and only Matthew Dowd. Male pattern. Fantastic. <laughs> Been a while since we had him. The champion's champion. Um, well, fantastic. Well, uh, the the listeners would love to know, and because we haven't played this game in a little while. It has been a little while. Holmes, who do you have? Well, you can't let, let a champion not defend the crown. <laughs> Right. And Steve Schmidt, I, I believe, is one, three or four. Yeah. I mean, he's a record holder, if I'm not. A, I think it was three in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the reason we haven't played this in a while is because Steve, as we all know, sort of lost his mind on Twitter. It's been well accounted. Yeah. Right? It started with going after Megan McCain. Actually, the, the funniest one was atta- attacking Megan McCain with Cindy McCain. On Mother's Day, that was my first. That, that yeah. was a nice way to kick things off. Yeah, right? guys, a real class act. Um, but then he decided to come after me personally, and like that's not. I mean, they've run two flights of ads at the Lincoln Project against <laughs> me, so that's not that's not the new part, right? What was new was he was making allegations against me that were, well, quite obviously, like extremely demonstrably, provably false in right. every way. But 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 they were also seemed to like designed to try to ruin my business, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's basically it wasn't just a character assassination which I can live with. There's other components where there's you know people who work here and everything else, and so there was some consternation about that mm-hmm. and thought about whether or not we should try to hold this guy accountable. Yeah, right. He he said things like uh, that I was working for Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> like we've never I've never taken a foreign contract in my life right yeah. but this guy apparently now I'm I'm working for the Saudis but it's just it, it seems like what he's tr- just trying to do is trying to goad people into fights on Twitter yeah more than anything yeah well I, I think that's right so I, did, I didn't respond to him but there was a professional responsibility to sort of go through the traps sure. with attorneys and whatnot and uh, so that's why we didn't we didn't do any of this uh, we're back and believe me, I, what I'd love to do, and I'm not going to bore you with it, what I'd love to do is do a 20-minute segment on what I think about this guy. That's what I'd love to do. 
We're not going to do that. Maybe we can do that sometime here in the future because I got a lot to say. You will reserve the balance of your time. I will reserve the balance of my time. Let's just play the game. (laughs) And instead, it's a 20-minute segment of what he thinks about himself. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, Well, great. Well, let's go ringside. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Once again, it's time for King of the Hill, a contest 20 years in the making, a battle of Bush Cheney 04 Titans. In the blue corner, fighting from a closed campaign office, Matthew Mailpattern Dowd. And now, in the red corner, fighting from a liberal pack in Utah, and current champion of the world, the old fat man, Steve Schmidt! <laughs> uh, Ashbrook brought like a unique level of heat that time. Oh, it was. Oh, the wind-up is so good. So good. Wow. Oh. So, uh, Schmidt's our defending champion. Mm-hmm. Even on hiatus, he retained the crown. Yeah. Um, so that means round one, Smug, you got to go first here, pal. Don't I go oh, first? Oh, no, wait. You, it's, that's how long Listen, it's been. That's how long it's been. That's how long the, it's been since we played this jury. game. You go first as defending champion. Excuse yeah. me. Okay. Well, you know, I have been sort of cycling through a bunch of options because, as you know, he provides a lot of content for you. Yeah. A lot of content for you. Um, but this one, I think, is where I'll start. This is... So when he had his, his meltdown, uh, there were many observations about his meltdown. And amongst those was the, the Washington Free Beacon, mm-hmm. which had a, a, a hilarious story entitled... Uh, leaker, liar, turncoat, nut job, <laughs> and, it, and, and they and they the picture that they have affixed to this story is a picture of Steve and Woody Harrelson. That's great, right? Like a big fat Steve and and Woody Harrelson. <clears throat> the MAGA media is a dishonest, toxic sewer. Please note in the below article smearing me. There is no factual rebuttal whatsoever to any of the things I have said. If you stand up against the insanity, you will be smeared. <laughs> I'm not afraid of it at all, period. I'm good, period. I'm also 50 pounds less. That's what he says? Yeah. <laughs> He's got to throw some narcissism wow. there throughout. <laughs> Just wow. a nice little smattering. <laughs> Is the case you were wondering about my physical appearance in the picture below. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> It's a lot going on there. It's a lot going on there. I mean, I'll say <clears throat> that he responds now to everything that anybody says about him at all. Right. Like that's his, that's his thing. But um, in fact, the, the story was full of a rebuttal of what he said. Right. <laughs> like that's basically what the story yeah. was. But, but the best is if you stand up against the insanity, you will be smeared. While he's smearing people standing up to his insanity, which right. I found just particularly perfect. It's pretty interesting. Also, I really enjoy that he says, uh, I'm good. And then 
around that is about another hundred words of in pure insanity <laughs> that clearly demonstrates he's not good. I'm also 50 pounds less. <laughs> it's like, this doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> and then he loses his mind. <laughs> all right. Smug. So I got a banger. I mean, this guy's got nothing but nukes, so I'm just going to let him fly. Okay. I mean, they, 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 they are really next level, even for Dowd. This is from today. It says, the idea leadership in 21st century has to stay captive to words written on a document 240 years ago is insane. Let us look at where we are today and whether words allow for a modern democracy to function and for all citizens to achieve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This guy's a Republican. In theory. <laughs> he said this guy worked for Republicans. <laughs> the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, listen, guys, Constitution, I don't know. Doesn't seem like it's that great, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the take. That Okay, sure, it may be the foundation for the existence of democracy on right, Earth. Right, right. But listen, maybe, you know, modern democracy doesn't need the foundation of democracy. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Gosh, some good, good takes. Um, it's gonna be tough. I'm gonna have to work my. Way. It's been a while, you know, so yeah. I'm not as sharp on on being able to suss out what's the best best part of these. Um, okay, so they're obviously very different sort of takes here. Um, the Steve Schmidt one is just. I guess what I really enjoy about it is that. It's like when um, when you ask your girlfriend, like, is there anything wrong? <laughs> and they go, no, no, I'm fine. And then, like, there's a pause. And then they're like, I just think it's funny that, you know, <laughs> and then you get a hundred words about why you're wrong. <laughs> it happens with my wife sometimes. It's just it happens in relationships. Yes. This is what it feels like. It feels like a very petty, like very narcissistic thing. Yeah. And that's why I appreciate it a lot. And that's why Schmidt wins round one. <laughs> Excellent. And I did like that take, but I felt like it's a common, it's a common it's a lib, lib. lib take. It didn't strike me as an absolute nuke. Okay. Round two. Okay. Smug, you're up. Uh, I think this is a great one. And, and I'm sure we're going to be seeing more of this going ahead. <clears throat> it says, I have always bought American auto products and nearly always a Jeep or Ram slash Dodge truck. One auto I will never buy is a Tesla. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> a lib, a newfound lib coming out against the electric car. Oh, you got to love to see it. Oh, that's great. Um, can I make a, uh, a motion to the court? Wow. Okay. Sure. Well, while what I'm proposing here is uh, not been done, and there is no precedent, and I will fully admit. Wow. Uh, but we have not played this in one month, and what I am requesting is to read a tweet that predates the week-long oh. uh, mandatory seven-day tweet reading. Okay. Your Honor, I'd like to come in with an amicus. <laughs> I think in under the circumstances it's only appropriate. That's completely insane. It's only appropriate to extend. We're just the making fun of week. someone for saying that like, hey, why follow the rules? The constitution, it's a bit old. now we're all of a sudden we're just changing the rules? What next? Get rid of the filibuster? So the only way I will let it stand 
the usage of said tweet is if is the reason why you want to use this tweet is because the other tweets that you would like to use uh, are perhaps defamatory against you personally. <laughs> um, I'll only be honest with this court. Okay. It is the opposite of that. Okay. Uh, you would like to use it. I would like to use a, a, a tweet that is defamatory. I mean, I really counsel. wish I knew you can just grab any tweet. Okay. Well, how about That'd this? Good to know. How about how about I sustain Smug's objection? Okay. Um, but um, in my counsel, uh, I've decided uh, Smug can choose to submit another tweet outside of the window in this round if he so chooses. But then I'd have to go and do the research, like, now to find tweets. Yeah. That's, that's very fair, Your Honor. <laughs> well, we could also uh, entertain a third way. A third way would be... A third way would be that we play this round with different tweets. Okay. You think about it. If you haven't come to a final decision on whether we can play these, because it sounds like counsel's unprepared. Unprepared. That he has three and three only. I didn't know that we were not having rules. That he's going to so. he's gonna need a continuance. <clears throat> that he would need a continuance. And while we don't have time for that on the Variety program, what I would say is we'll play this round as is. Okay. Uh if he's able to sustain this rounding move to a th- round three, uh, that I be offered the opportunity as an addendum okay. to read uh, a tweet okay, uh, in addition to whatever okay. other tweet we're dealing with. I here. think that's fair. Okay. Smug, are you okay with that? Yeah. I, it's a game where we pick tweets from one week. I guess let's just do whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Play the original or, or not the one you would like to. No, okay. Yeah, I'll play it. I'll play a different one. Go ahead, pal. You're up. That that was my tweet, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jesus. He, yeah he played Listen it. To me. Listen how out of practice we are. Yeah. Boy, I'm losing my mind here. I think Steve's got me rattled with this. Yeah. I just, there's so much good stuff. I don't know what to get to. I, I could read basically every tweet from from today all the way back a month ago and win this game. Right. Uh. Okay, so here's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with tomorrow. This is what he's talking about in... Um, reaction to events this week tomorrow i will not lower my american flag to half mast i will fly it upside down i will fly it upside down and i well encourage others to fly the flag to do so as well this is a symbol of distress not disrespect our country is in distress it is in crisis this comes, by the way, uh, 12.03 a.m. Jeez. So it's, uh, there's, you know. Smug, can you read yours one more time? Absolutely. I have always bought American auto products. Yeah. And American auto products, first of all. <laughs> there's no who talks like that. It sounds like a dude who has sounds a Sounds like truck. a fucking alien, first yeah. of all. How many people have a truck that say, this is my favorite American auto product? <laughs> I, know? I buy human recreational vehicles. <laughs> 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 What kind of auto product are you driving these days? I have always bought American auto products and nearly always a Jeep or Ram slash Dodge truck. One auto I will never buy is a Tesla. He's no Ray Zelensky. <laughs> Ray Zelensky. Um, That's, 
the best characters in all of cinema. These are very similar. Uh, and Steve's is great, but I think I think what I really enjoy about Smug's take here with Dowd is it's it's the virtue signaling, just like your tweet with the flag, with an additional layer where he's a f- false machismo that mm. he's somehow this like uh, oh, you know Chevy okay. and Ram truck guy, yeah. which of course he's mad Dowd. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and for that reason, Smug wins round two. I can't argue with that. That's actually good. That's pretty good analysis. That's pretty good analysis. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Round three to the champ. Here we go. So you're going to play or what, hold what, your... No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the, another tweet. Okay. And um, Smug can play his tweet. I just only ask that I can read okay. my addendum tweet okay. as a part of this round. Okay. This is about this. He's RTing Oliver Darcy, uh-huh. who dutifully, as a member of CNN media staff, is writing uh, critically what the headlines of Fox's 7 p.m. hour. Oh, like the Chiron? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he's like, this is like one of their favorite bits. It's like, well, this is what Fox Can is you talking believe about. They're-, they're not talking yeah. about our liberal ideals. They're talking right. about this. <clears throat> These incitements have killed. And will kill again. Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan, Speaker Ryan, and News Corp board are responsible for this. This is like the BP Deepwater Horizon catastrophe, but a hundred times worse. This is nonstop poison, and it is the language of civil war and death. <laughs> Gosh, the guy just like he uses hyperbole so often. He's just, the level's always at 11. Dude, the BP, what the fuck? The BP Deepwater Horizon catastrophe? What? I, it's like, but it, there's like this, <laughs> like, I think he's trying to say it's the worst thing of all time. Right. Uh, it's a catastrophe, no question. Uh, doesn't yeah. seem like a civil war, right, It didn't seem like a civil war. <laughs> it's a hor- horrible thing. But it is if you're a newfound enviro. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is, I guess, what he's trying to pattern himself as. Okay. Smug, what do you got for us? Uh, So this is also to keep in line with how Dowd is ahead of the curve. He's ahead of his time. Okay. So, you know, over the past days in the wake of the shooting, you've gotten all, I mean, a ton of libs have jumped on the insane train of this is actually just white supremacy. This is from three days ago. Fact. More Americans have died from domestic white supremacist terrorism in the last year than have died from Islamic terrorism, immigrant violence at border, and lack of baby formula combined. Mm. That's a take. That's a take to drop. Wow. And, and and this one specifically enraged me. <laughs> um, I have I have a uh, I think I've related this story to you. I have a really good friend whose family lives uh, in a town in Texas along the border, and uh, one of their family friends owns a car dealership there and that guy's daughter was actually kidnapped by cartel members and taken back across the border and they said they they uh sent a ransom note saying that uh you have to give us two pickup trucks or we will rape and kill your daughter and the guy sends over two pickup trucks and he gets his daughter sent back raped no wow and that's the thing is that this problem is so minimized by the media when they try to like make a joke of it if they're like right Oh, you know, these migrants, you know, 
uh, it's ridiculous how you're trying to like demonize these people are like these are just people like looking for a better life and when you hear all these instances of like you've got people on the terrorist watch list right. who you've have got come through the border you've got that guy not who, to mention the coyotes who are trafficking people he, and raping women and exactly. bringing drugs into this country yeah. exactly it's like they think it's just people walking across a, a border and it's not I mean there there's a whole cottage industry of violence and drugs that that is involved and, and especially when they drop the whole take of like Jesus was an illegal alien. Jesus was not a coyote. He was not right. like human trafficking women. And like yeah. the, the statistics that they give of like over 50% of women who make that journey end up getting like sexually assaulted and how uh, parents, when they send their kids, they give them birth control. Jeez. Like it's horrific. And the way that they make light of it and, and, and the whole like white, like that's become the new catch all, you know, like right. they tie that with the whole like democracy is under attack, white supremacy. Like they have to have this like boogeyman to drive their base. And if anyone knows about, you know, trying to find a boogeyman, it's the guy who wrote Axis of Evil, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got it. I mean, uh, the judge, his hat goes off to the counselor here. It was a well, it was a, it was a well articulated. Per, perhaps argument. Smug's finest uh, closing argument in the game, in, in the history of the game. I think it was. And I think for that reason. Well, well, no, hold on. Can I get to read my addendum? Okay, he want, wants to play the addendum. I thought I thought this was, did we not? Uh, am I stepping out of line on that? No, no, you can play your addendum. Here's my addendum from Steve Schmidt. Saudi and Emirati money. It's flowing <laughs> unregulated into firms like the one Josh Holmes is running. <laughs> I remember this tweet. He whispers the policy to leader McConnell and poof, done deal. He's siphoning millions of dollars from WinRed, <laughs> as are the other political aides close to this corrupt GOP leadership. Like what? <laughs> I just want to think it's right. Where did he get these ideas? I, that's the thing that I can't understand about it. Like if it's just a pure character assassination or if he's actually so surrounded by insane people that they have planted this in his head as though that's like, there's the real an thing. element of truth to it. I've never, I've never once worked for any Saudi or Emirati or <laughs> nonprofit or anything that has anything to do with any of that. And we have a firm rule that we never do that. We right. will never take on international clients. You know, everyone what? knows that. There's a track record here. Iraq is going better than you think. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> wow. that's Steve's. That's uh, Iraq facts. You Iraq facts. Iraq facts. That's it was uh, oh, this, but, but the subheader to, with Iraq facts was. Uh, the good news happening in Iraq. Yeah, nothing going wrong over in Iraq. So can you contextualize that a little bit for our younger listeners who, who, who maybe aren't familiar with that? Yeah, I worked at the RNC at the time, and they sent Steve to Baghdad to go talk about all the good things that were, were happening. And Steve, would they would put together this document that was entitled Iraq Facts. Yeah. And the subheader was basically some something along the lines of all the good news happening in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like uh, they built this, uh, they Swimming built this pool. Pl <laughs> playground for children. Just cut, cutting a lot of ribbons. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. It was nonsense, yeah. right? Complete and utter nonsense. But that was like his baby. Wow. That. So anyway, that that's the background of that. Um, the second piece of this is worth addressing as well. Siphoning millions of dollars from WinRed. Now, Unlike Steve, I have never had a role within the party where I own the infrastructure of the party and or of a campaign, right? When red, I have an unpaid board seat. <laughs> uh, I've not paid a cent. I've never been paid a cent. 
My job, as I saw it, was when we were getting our asses kicked six or seven to one in small dollar in 2019, was to try to get together with the Trump folks and the House folks to see if we could put together a solution to have one payment processor that would allow us to compete. That came together in the form of WinRed. Very successfully, I might add. Very successfully. And I I do remember it being a very difficult process, and we had a pull out of people kicking and screaming to the table. Yeah. You know? And guess who didn't get a dime for that? <laughs> didn't didn't Trump also name Winred? Isn't that, I, yeah, I, he did. Oh, uh, yeah, he did. It was supposed to be something different, and then, but he, he wanted... Uh, like wanted, the, uh, I, I It was called Patriot, uh, Patriot Pass. 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 I think the, the New England Patriots already have like a Patriot Pass or something. And, and the story that I'd heard... Yeah, Kraft didn't like it. Is uh, uh, Trump then came up with... Act said, Blue. They Act say Blue. Act Black, Act Blue. We win. Win red. There it is. Yeah, that was the story, evidently. That's pretty good. You guys got pretty good branding. Pretty good branding. So there it is, win red. Uh, An operation I have zero investment in and have received (laughs) 0.0 in. So that is the tweet. I mean, it's remarkable. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I, I have to give you style points. Uh, for having you know the ability to play a tweet mentioning yourself is really a first class effort. Well, there's 15 more if you'd like to have me <laughs> submit them in various forms. I won't, I won't bore our listeners. I think you should reserve the balance of your time for any maybe legal maneuverings that may be necessary. Um, gosh, it's a great it's a great tweet. I just got to give it to Smug because of the way he did the close. Yeah. It was the best closing argument you've ever given, Smug, and I really appreciate it. And for that reason, you've won this game of King of the Hill. Let's go. Finally knocked off the champ. It's about time. I mean, the guy needs help. Like, let's be serious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At, some, at some point, we got to stop reading Steve Schmidt because he's... It's hard, man. It's hard. It makes, it makes Sherry look like she's got things on the tracks doesn't it and i think they actually had beef like sherry was like this guy's crazy yeah <laughs> it was like the nexus when of sherry's all things king of the hill when sherry's calling you crazy <laughs> oh all right well let's get to our interview this guy's amazing he's the only only nba basketball player to stand when everyone else kneeled in the bubble in 2020 after the protests of George Floyd and everything else with the Black Lives Matter movement. He also, you know, refused uh, to be vaccinated when the, all the NBA was was forcing it upon all of their players because he is who he is, but his story is more important than what he did. Uh, let's get to the interview. I want to welcome to the program just an absolutely incredible uh, story, a, a guy who I've got a ton of respect for after I've read his book, um, you, you, many of you probably know him as NBA star for the Orlando Magic. But Jonathan Isaac, welcome to the program. Man, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Listen, um, you're not just here because you're an NBA star. You're here because you're a best-selling author as well. And and your book, Why I Stand, is one of the best reads that I've had in a long time. Um, oh. And look, obviously, both the title and sort of the backstory of how this all came to fruition was about you choosing to stand during the national anthem when the NBA was in the bubble and you were basically the only person that did that. And of course, you're going to receive a lot of attention for that. I'm sure you knew. But but I think the backstory of who you are and what brought you to that day is is actually some of the most fascinating stuff. Uh, what can you tell us about this whole process? 
uh, the, the process has been, it's, it's been, it's been amazing, but it's, it's been so surreal at the same time. Um, you know, I, I never, what, what I do love about the book is that um, I, I just never would have imagined it, it coming to life um, the same way that um, early on in my younger years and even in high school and college, I never would have imagined being the only one to stand for anything because of the, the different struggles that I had. So it's just like to see the book, to see who, who I am today, um, who I've grown to become. I, I know that it's just a testament to the reality of what a, a relationship with Christ can, can do and, and the transformative power of that. And um, yeah, I just, I just want to keep moving forward with it. It's it, what's so amazing is in today's day and age, so rarely do you see any individual sort of challenge conventional wisdom, challenge what everybody expects of them, and and do something that they believe is right, despite all of the criticism that they know they'll take. Right? Because it's so much easier, so much more marketable to not challenge any of that. Right? And and somebody like you is in the pinnacle of that discussion because there are contracts, there are marketing deals, there are all kinds of things and people are like, hey man, can't you just like keep it chill for a little bit and not not have to do this because we could sign a great deal with this person and that. And you kind of threw all that out and decided like, no, this is right for me. Yeah, and, and there, there was a lot of that. You know, I've had plenty of conversations with even with my own representation and 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 not, not anything bad on them or wrong with them. It was just like they're, they're looking out for. Yeah, they're they trying believe. to trying to do their job. Right. You no, know, my best interest. So we want to we want to keep you as marketable and as, you know, equitable to everyone as possible. Um, but, yeah, I, I just you know, I, I believed in, in what I was standing for and, um, you know, looking out into the world and and. And, you know, so many people were hyper focused on racism at the time and rightfully so because of what happened. But racism is not the only thing that plagues the hearts of men. And I, I couldn't think of a better antidote or um, remedy for the times other than the gospel when it comes to changing the hearts of men. And so it was like it, it, this moment was almost thrust upon me because, you know, I was in the bubble and it was either like this is a decision that you got to make. Um, but I'm just glad that I was prepared for it. And again, the, the book speaks to the different people that have you know, been a part of my life and helped groom me to, to where I am today. My pastor, my now wife, my church family, you know, Coach Gates and Bora and all those guys that were so early in the story, um, but they, they all have a place in it. Yeah, well, I want to get into the book and your background in a second, but I, I do also want to ask, you know, you're, you're about to walk out on the floor and you know what's going to happen, right? Were you nervous? I was terrified. Yeah. Um, I, I really was. And I, I, I didn't sleep the night before either. And so that, that's that's detailed in the book. But um, it's, it's almost like you're, you're going before the firing squad. I, squad. I, <laughs> I, I knew I, I could feel everyone staring at me because I didn't have the shirt on. Um, you know, my teammates, everybody, I, I knew what I was. This is the BLM, in. the BLM shirt that the rest of the, the team was right. wearing. Oh, yeah, every, right. Everybody else in the building had the shirt on. Um, uh, it, it was just me who didn't, who had on my jersey. And so, you know, I was getting looks as I was warming up and it was just like, here we go. Um, <laughs> oh, and and, and I, also, I, just, I really don't think that people understand like how, how crucial the moment was because I'm, I'm still, I was still in the bubble. Like after I stood, it wasn't like I was able to go home. Um, right. Like, no, we, we live in the bubble. Yeah. You and go, so, you go back and sit and have to go talk with everybody who's like, dude, come on. Yeah, exactly. So it, it was a tough moment. And I, I, I just, you know, the, the book really brings that to life and how how I got there and the aftermath and all that as well. Well, what really brought it to life for me is getting through a little bit of your background, right? How you grew up. Your mom sounds absolutely incredible. Um, but I thought there was a story early in the book that you had about uh, the paper cup with your dad. 
yeah. uh, which I thought was so, I mean, it sounds small, right? But but the fact that you recall it with such precision so many years later, and it was about whether or not you had thrown away a cup in a garbage can when he found it sort of littered underneath the car. And mm-hmm. he knew darn well that you left the cup there, but you wouldn't admit to it. And you got a real right. lesson in integrity at an early age. Yeah, and, and you know, my, my dad is dope, man. My, my dad, um, you know, even knowing the moment for him, and he's talked about it too, like, you know, when, when it comes to whoopings or just disciplining your child, it, it wasn't, that was hard for him to do, but it was almost like he cherished the principle of integrity so much um, and knowing that it's going to be something that we need, that it was like, it, it was hard for him to do, but he thought it was necessary. And and even even in that moment and being able to reflect upon it, it was like, uh, I could have I won in that moment if he had believed me. And like, yeah, I got him, but it it, 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 it just works in your life in, in a negative way when you get away with one thing and the next thing and the next thing, it kind of de- deteriorates your character and integrity level. And so um, I'm glad, you know, I had, I have the dad that I have and, um, I, what I try my best to do is show um, what him not being there, how, how that affected me. And so, you know, he really was like Superman to me early growing up and, and for him not to be there anymore. And now, you know, everything that I'm dealing with, everything that I'm going through, I'm only dealing with it in my own head. My mom is, is busting her behind working all the time, just trying to provide for us. My brothers are all doing their own thing. And so I don't have, I don't have an outlet. I don't have anybody necessarily, um, you know, catering to my emotional needs or anything like that. It's just, you know, go to school, play basketball and and figure out how you're feeling behind the scenes. Yeah. What well, was so so you move from New York, you go down to Florida. And it just got to be a cultural whirlwind, <laughs> right? I mean, and we're talking Naples here. I mean, this is a, for those of us who who know Naples well, like that is a huge adjustment from where you grew up in New York. And and you're try I I love the story about you trying to figure out how to fit in and and people not necessarily seeing it that way and and you just trying to weave through the the all these dynamics at such a young age but at the same time building your character and holding that integrity that you had that you were just instilled with at a young age yeah it, it was it really was a cultural shock um you know i i had never you know been around a large group of white people before in my life yeah um and so, and, and so to kind of be thrust into this moment and again, without a sounding board, without anybody, you know, walking me through that, this is going to be a hard time. You're going to have to adjust. It was literally just like, I'm dealing with all this in my own head, what people are saying, what people are thinking. And I had that first moment where, you know, I'm horse playing with the other kids because that's how, that's how we got along in, in the Bronx. It was you horse play and you make friends. And so um, that's what I'm doing to try to fit in. And it's almost like I was so off. I was so wrong about my own perception of myself that that was the first time that I developed, um, you know, and, and, and like being self-aware and being self-conscious and like, oh, you know, I'm not who I thought I was. And to hear the principal, you know, have, and, and again, to, to, not, not anything wrong with him, you know, he's thinking like, you know, these kids are going to get hurt. And so, um, but to hear like almost the dread in his voice, like we have to protect these kids from your son. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm, yeah. I'm a monster. Yeah, <laughs> and right. So, uh, so it, it was difficult. And um, just, just trying to navigate that as a young kid and, 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 you know, it, it was tough. Well, the church was always sort of central to your life, right? And and as you're going through all these changes, it seemed to me like throughout reading your book, that's the that's the grounding for all of this, right? It's it's why you don't ultimately lose your spirit as so many kids have when they're thrust into a situation like you were, where they feel different. They feel like they're an outcast. They feel like right. they're never going to fit in. You had this this grounding that you kept going back to. 
Well, the growing up in church, um, I, I didn't necessarily understand what it was. So again, it was it was more tradition for me in, in, in Bronx and New York. And it was that Pentecostal spirit filled church where everything is just going on and it's lively. Um, and we're just having fun, really. We're not really holding on to anything that's being said. Um, and then I get to Naples and I have these first instances where um, I'm feeling different. I'm feeling left out. Going to youth group was the first time that I had a sense of like, okay, the, the, these are friends. Like they, you know, they're, they're nice. The, 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 the youth group leaders are nice and they, they taken, they took a liking to me and I started to, to play in these youth group skits and I was one of the leading roles all the time. So it was like, it, it, it was, it was a moment where I could breathe. Um, yeah. before, even before I found basketball really to, to play it, you know? Um, and so, and then it, obviously, you know, I go out and I start living my life and I, I, I make it to the NBA and then I find myself back in the, you know, back in the same place that I started. So um, I, I feel like I just had these moments of kind of getting, getting brought back around full circle yeah. to the church and um, it, it, it being the grounding thing that I now hold on to in life. So I, I also found it interesting that you described a little bit of the recruiting process, right? Where, I mean, you got to know you're a good basketball player, but but all of a sudden, I mean, you, it, clearly, your lack of knowledge about the recruiting process, as you describe in the book, I, had me dying. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, especially the line where uh, what does it say? Uh, I didn't know the NCAA from the NWCP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, I, but I, I really didn't. I, and and part of it was simply because I never in a million years would have expected myself to be in the position that I was in. And so um, I love to watch basketball as an art, as as a, as as just a passion and to play it. But you know, I was never in my mind to be like I'm one of those kids that are going to go and and play and get a scholarship or anything like that. I always reserved that in my mind for the other kids that I was playing with. And so when I was on the phone with a coach and he's like, "Do you know where our school is at?" I'm like, "I have no idea." <laughs> Do you know what conference we're in? conference what what the heck is a conference i have i have no idea and so it, it was real uh weird to kind of walk walk that line and just learn about thing and at the same time be you know really highly touted and highly recruited yeah and that's and that's the thing that i think again obviously comes back to how you were raised raised with the church with faith because a lot of kids you get put in that situation all of a sudden you have john calipari on the phone and rick patino on the phone as you described and all these people trying to recruit you i mean you can kind of begin thinking that like you know i'm kind of the show here and you didn't <laughs> and you didn't yeah yeah and 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 that was i mean and even even when you when you fast forward a little bit and you go to the draft where it was like i'm i'm going to be the number 6 pick in the draft and i was the number 6 pick in the draft but it was still it was still like, what do I do? Like, I have no idea. And, and you could, t I could tell the difference in myself of me versus the other guys who were getting drafted because they just, they knew what was going on. Like they, they were, they were present for the moment. They knew that after they got drafted, they were going to go have the party with their family and celebrate and all those things. But for me, it was like, dude, what do I do? I, I, now I, what? I, I, I walked and I got, I got a slice of pizza and I went back to the hotel and sent my, my family home and was just and like, that's it. I'm, I'm the number <laughs> And so, um, I, I think it, it's, it's helped me, but at the same time, if I, if I had to do it again, um, you know, I would be more present for a lot of those things that were happening and because ultimately I, I would believe that it was possible. Um, but I think at the same time, it helped me stay grounded and, and humble to a degree that I didn't see myself as, as highly as everyone else did. Cause that's a big leap too. You know, I mean, you're a young guy, you're still a very young guy, but it, clearly when you're drafted, I mean, you're a few years out of high school and you go from your entire experience up to that point to, you know, being a millionaire and being around these legends that all of us have watched 
for years mm-hmm. and years, but yet being able to hold on to your identities is who you are, I think is really one of the most extraordinary things about you because I, I, I got to imagine any line of work, but particularly like the MBA, when you're surrounded by people who all are trying to get the same thing and do the same things, there's a, a, a tendency to sort of have a group think about right. the way you're supposed to, to proceed. And, and you resisted that. Well, it, it was something that I, I resisted as I grew because when I, when I first got into the league and even early on in basketball, basketball became my identity. It, it, it was the only thing that I saw value in when it came to me because it got me, it got the girls to like me. It got everybody to want to be around me. And I, I, I would walk through the halls of the school and everybody be like, that's Jonathan Isaac. And only because I was a talented basketball player. And so I, I, I fed off of it and I, I ate into it. And I, it only made me strive harder to be a great basketball player because I was like, this is the ticket to me being who I, who I want to be. Um, but where I, where I grew was ultimately find, being able to find my identity in Christ. And even when I, when I first get to the league, I'm trying, I, I want to fit in with my teammates. I'm doing everything that an NBA player, um, you know, has access to because I, I, I want to be in that life. I want to get everybody to like me, all my teammates to like me. Um, and as my life started to turn around with developing a relationship with Christ, that's when I started to, um, find myself rejecting a lot of the things that everybody else was doing and kind of going my own way. Um, but it wasn't something that was easy to do as, as obviously detailed in the book with different stories. Um, but I, I grew into it. Yeah. Well, it, it, what's so interesting is, you know, particularly with the, the, the noteworthy piece about standing during the national anthem, this was not during the NBA to be clear, this was not the debate like the NFL was having where there were differences of opinion. There were no differences. Like you said, officials were kneeling, right? And everything that yeah. led, led up to that point, it's it's like, well, you, that's what you do. You're an NBA player. And yet somehow you found the courage to not do that. Yeah, it, it was it was all one way. <laughs> like right. there, there was, and, and, and again, it, it speaks to just how crazy the time was. It was like, one of the things that, 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 that I rejected or that I, that I didn't necessarily like was it was like, this is the only way in this moment to affirm the support of black lives. This, this, this is the only thing you can do. And so you had every ref, you had every coach, you had every player, you had every, you know, team official, you know, presidents and, and, and GMs and everybody was kneeling um, as a way to, um, to almost pledge their allegiance to the movement and to the organization. And so uh, th- that's one of the things that I didn't like early on, even because it was just like, that's not the only way to support black lives. And, and what it what it turned from was a symbol into an order. Um, and, and that's what uh, what, what kind of made me uneasy. And I was like, you know, I, I've seen my life supported by the gospel. I've seen people that look like me and their lives supported by the gospel. And I, I can't think of a better antidote for the times that we see ourselves in other than that message. And so that's why I decided to stand up and give it. It, it It's so everything has become so political. Right. And we've seen corporations basically been hijacked by some of the same movements you're talking about now, but, but right. basically trying to, to put into a political context, you know, their value statements, which, you know, if anybody believes that some of these corporations have your true value at heart, like I got something for them. But but it's different when it's an individual and you're standing there alone and you're knowing that like you've got endorsements issues and all kinds of things. What was the immediate reaction of your teammates to this? Well, so, so detailed in the book as well. Um, we, we have a heated conversation. So after, after I stand in the bubble, we have, we, we, we finish the game, we win the game. Everybody goes back to the hotel. You know, we don't hear anything. The next day we go to practice 
And as we're on the bus heading back from practice, I get a text on my phone and it's like team meeting players only. This is the place. And so as I'm getting off the bus, a teammate taps me and says, you know, this, this is about you. And so I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> okay, this is going to get interesting. And so, yeah, we, we had an, we had a heated conversation. And one of the things that um, for me that I understood is that it, it was an emotional time. Like there, there were guys who, who again, really believed in what they were kneeling for and, and, and re- all, re- all the respect to them. Um, you know, it, my, I wasn't protesting their protest. I was, right. I was standing up for what I believed in in the moment to be an answer to the problems that we see in our society and our world ultimately. And, um, you know, not everybody ag- agreed with this. So we had a heated conversation and some guys, you know, some guys understood where I was coming from. They may have not agreed, but they respected the fact that I, that, that I did what I did. And there were other guys who were, who were adamant about, you know, me, me hijacking the movement or trying to make it all about me. Um, but that, that wasn't, which was the opposite of what you were doing. Right. And, and so, so what we left it as was just like, look, you know, you guys believed in what you were kneeling for. And, and, and I believe in what I'm standing for. And, you know, I respect your decision to kneel and I just ask for that same respect in return. Yeah. Well, in everyday sense, you've been able to demonstrate that, right? And and what your values are and, and how you care no less deeply about black lives than anybody else by refusing to, to, to stand or refusing to kneel rather on that day. How much have you been able to sort of, I guess, maybe convince is the wrong word, but just have people understand that your heart is basically in the same place on a lot of these things, but you're, the way you, they, they go about it isn't right for you. Right. I, I think that has some, that has been something that has, I, I wouldn't say changed, but has like grown over time. And even, even having conversations with some of those same teammates and players has, 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 has been shifted from um, them understanding where I was coming from. And, um, but obviously there's, there are still people who still, you know, disagree with me or think that what I did was wrong or what I did was selfish. Um, but like you said, I've, I've tried my best to kind of humbly walk out my position and where I'm coming from. And, and again, not, not deny the fact that I see what they see, but that I, I, I believe that there's a different answer and there's a better answer than the one of, you know, division and anger and, and revenge and vitriol and tribalism. And so, um, so yeah. One of the things I'm interested in is does the NBA after all of this, right? The NBA, like any other organization, and they basically try to cater to what they perceive the values are of of the organizations, the players, and their fan base, and everything else. Right. Clearly, you have articulated a position very different from the one that they had in mind at the time. But I think over time, has shown to be not only genuine and sincere, but courageous and incredible. Are you at a point where anybody comes to you to ask you about any of these like tough social issues? Cause I imagine like your perspective on this is incredibly valuable to organizations that are trying to expand a base beyond just sort of a monolithic ideology. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would say that I, I, w- I would expect that to a degree, not, not that I feel that, that what I have to say is, is, is so, you know, highly touted more than anybody else's, but I, I would think that it would be reasonable too, but I, it hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had one conversation and I, de- I decided to leave it out, like leave it out of the book. And so you're getting an exclusive. Oh, nice. I, okay. I, I had one conversation with, um, with, with some, with, with, with somebody who, you know, is, is, is around and familiar with us and was also in the bubble. And, and one of the things that um, he detailed to me was that, man, I, I agree with, where you stand, I'm a Christian as well. And I think what you did was the right thing to do. Um, but, but I, but I couldn't do it in that moment. And, you know, because I felt that the pressure of everybody else, you know, 
wanting me to do it and this, that, and the third, I decided to kneel. But when I kneeled, I looked up and you were standing. Um, and whatever, I, I'm, I'm this age and you're that age and, and you had more courage than me in that moment. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I said back to him was like, man, like this, this that's not going to be the only time to stand. Like there's going to be a, yeah. a million more opportunities to stand because, because it's, it, we're human and we're going to continue to, to, to fight. We're going to continue to get on each other's nerves and, and terrible, tragic things are going to continue to happen. But the message of love is, is, is the one that is truly needed. And so, um, we, we had that conversation. That's so it's just, it blows me away. I mean, you don't see it this way. I mean, I hope you do in, in some ways, but the courage that you had to do that in the moment that you did it is something that I, I mean, I hope to God that at some point, if I'm stuck in a situation like that, that I would have the courage to do. I'm just not sure everybody would. I'm not sure I would. And, and that like you are, you have been an inspiration to so many people about your, their, if they feel like something's not right, that they have the ability, they have the, they can get through this. They can express themselves. They can do what they think is right. And the world's not going to end. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of times it, it does start with one person and it, it, it does. Um, and not even saying that person is me, but, you know, seeing somebody else do that can encourage and inspire you to do the same. And, and that's a, that's a big part of the reason why the book is here is to, it's to show people that, man, I'm not this just courageous guy who walked in there and was like, yeah, I, did, I, I know what it is that I believe in and, and screw everybody else. It was like, no, man, I, I'm the kid who was on anxiety medication playing basketball at Florida yeah. State. Yeah. Um, and I've do, I've been developed in this way through a relationship with Christ to where it's like, I know what I'm standing for is the truth because of the way that it's affected me in my own life through my experiences. So I'm not just saying Jesus is the answer to be cliche. It's like, he's been the answer for me. Um, but honestly, like to your point about like, you know, people being able to to be, to be individuals. It's like, you don't necessarily have to be right. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in your thing, but you just have to be willing to say what it is that you feel and say what it is that you think. Um, I, I believe that I'm right in the sentiment that, um, that God's love, the way that God loves us is going to be the answer to, 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 to the world's problems as it comes to interpersonal relationships. Um, and so that's why, you know, I had, the, I had the courage in that moment to do it. But, you know, if, 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 like you said, if you feel a certain way or you don't be afraid to, to, to stand on what you believe in and, and, and to, and to say it. But one of the things that my pastor said to me the night before I stood was you cannot stand for God and God not stand for you. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was a big, um, encouragement to me doing it because it's like, I know I'm not standing for myself. I know that if anything, I don't want to be out here. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And even just again, reading the story, looking at my background, that's the last thing that I want to do is go against what everybody else is doing. But I, I knew what I was standing for was, was true to me and it was honest and it was sincere. And so I decided to go through with it. Yeah. It's one of the things that makes your story so interesting is that you're, you're an unlikely hero here in a lot of ways, given your description of your own growing up and your description of your own mental state as you're going from place to place and trying to fit in. And I mean, you're anything but like a, like a, a class clown is sort of trying to stand out, right? You're trying to fit in as best you possibly can. And now here you find yourself at a, at a young age, the top of your profession having to be, you know, something totally different than anybody else is doing. Right. Right. And it, it does to, to me, all it does is highlight the truth of what, what how transformative a relationship with Christ can be. And, and ultimately just his unconditional love, because that was the thing that got me and, and, and his unconditional love being shared to me through the people who, who were in my life. Doc, my wife, again, the church family, they they they, they, they walked out what 
what Jesus' unconditional love is like, whether you're up, whether you're down, whether you make a shot, whether you miss a shot. And again, that's what I feel is going to be the answer ultimately, that if we can choose to love each other the way that God loves each of us, which is past, in, in spite of our sins, in spite of our faults and our differences, then we could have real change on both sides. It's not just one side loving and, and forgiving the other, but both sides choosing to love and forgive each other. Yeah, well, you're, you're a credit to everybody uh, in your family who and, and those around you who, who raised you the way you did. I think you did more by standing alone uh, to bring people together than basically anything the NBA is, has done. That's me saying that, not you. I'm not going to get you in trouble with that. But. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, mean I, I think that I mean, even to the point of the NBA, it's like it's, it's, it's what's happened is one side has been has been painted as evil and, and racist and all these things. So it's like, you know, you do feel that you have a, a lot of people feel that they have the moral high ground to then attack the other side or take one side or take a position. But, you know, and, and especially in, in an entertainment field, it's to me, it would only be um, beneficial to you to, you know, try your best at least to stay in the middle and, and just share entertainment to to the world. But when you see one side is evil, it's easy to, to, yeah. to only want to cater to the other side. And so you don't you don't see them as necessarily human. Well, these are the important conversations that we need to have. Uh, before I get to my three questions, real quick, they're rapid fire. Uh, how's the knee? How's the recovery? We're going to see you next season. Man, I'm I'm feeling so good. I'm feeling so <laughs> good. I, I I just got off the court not too long ago, and I rushed home to knock out these two podcasts. But um, I'm feeling good, man. I'm 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 strong, um, and I'm just ready to continue to just ramp up things as I move throughout the summer and and be ready for the start of the season. Well, you got a lot of new fans. I know that uh, you've done a world for for everybody and trying to bring people together. So thank you for that, Jonathan. Here's the three questions. All right, if you could plan your last meal on earth, what would it be? Oh, if I could plan my last meal. Uh, I'm 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 just like a home cooked meal guy. So like some some baked chicken, some baked barbecue chicken that my mom would make, um, some rice, some macaroni and cheese, and plantains. That's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, second question: If you never got into basketball, if this was not your career, uh, and I'm even going to put the author thing on that too, is if you were not an author and you had this hole of blue sky that you can fill with anything you wanted to do in life, what would it be? Man, this is supposed to be rapid fire. You know, th this is going to sound really, really weird. No, um, it, nothing sounds weird to this question. You, should, you won't honestly, believe some of the answers we've had. Yeah, honest, honestly, like b basketball for me wasn't something that I ran after. It, it was something that I loved to do, and I kind of just got passed along to each stage, and, and next thing you know, I'm in the NBA. But when I was young, I really did have a, a real genuine love for animals. Oh, yeah. And so whenever I was, like, doing class projects or anything like that, I would do them on – a Tasmanian devil or an anaconda or something like that. So I had this, I had this thought on the back of my mind that I should be a zookeeper. A zookeeper. <laughs> that's perfect. That's something that I've actually told, you know, a good, a good amount of people. So I, I'd, I'd be a zookeeper right now. I feel like the Orlando zoo owes a debt of gratitude to get you in amongst the animals at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Here's the last question. You got to follow me on this. All right. So our view is that people are basically motivated by one, all successful people are motivated by one of two things either the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anybody enjoys defeat or, mm -hmm. or doesn't like victory. It's that the thrill of victory person is the consummate optimist, right? The glass half full, always charging up the hill, trying to get to the next thing, right? Mm -hmm. the, the agony of defeat person is somebody who's every victory they've enjoyed for like two and a half seconds. But every defeat that they've ever had or setback in life, they remember and they hold on to it 
and they work that much harder to ensure that it never happens again or it happens differently or they can get to that next goal where they're not in that situation, right? So there's a spectrum there, obviously. Yeah. But if you're thinking about that, where do you find yourself? I would say being completely honest with myself, I would be, I would be closer towards the middle, but on the side of, um, what would you say? Like not, not, not enjoying defeat. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, that's a part of just the way that I've, I've, I've kind of lived my life and especially the way I've grown up and always being, you know, being anxious and never wanting to put myself out there, always kind of taking, taking the back seat to things. And, um, and so, but I, I would say I've become more of the person who, um, I, I not even so much as thrilled by th- thrilled by winning, but thrilled by like almost like God. Like I don't know what you have next for me. It's like the, the the more that I've leaned into what I believe my purpose to be, the bigger it's gotten. And so the more that I've kind of just been excited about it. But I, I would say through the entire course of my life, I would say I'm closer to the middle, but on, on the side of trying my best to rid myself of of defeat. That sounds exactly right. And there's no right or wrong answers to this one. There's authentic ones. And we got a very authentic one from you on that. Listen, Jonathan Isaac, we're all huge fans. We're rooting for your comeback here from an injury for next season. We'll be watching an author of Why I Stand. I assume we can get this at any bookstore. Yes, sir. Um, I would encourage everybody to go and grab it off Amazon, but it is in Barnes and Nobles, Books a Million. Um, I got it right here just so you guys can see it. Oh yeah. Why I and um and, and and you you said this already, but the, the book really is so much more than just about standing in the bubble or uh you know, refusing a vaccine. You know, that's something we didn't get to talk too much on, but um that's in there as well. It really is just about my journey and how I got to those moments in the first place and how I was able to face fear and anxiety and all those different things um through developing a relationship with Christ. And so I just encourage everybody to check it out. That's awesome. Jonathan Isaac, thanks for joining us. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Recording stop. Hey, that is awesome. Thank you so much for doing it, man. Yeah, that was great, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you helping just continue to, you know, push this thing. So thank you so much. You got it. Anytime. Happy to stay in touch. So uh, good luck out there. Okay, man. You too. See ya. Peace. Man, what a fantastic interview and i gotta say we need more athletes on the show we need to do more sports we do a lot of politics nothing wrong with politics but i mean there's so much more to be to be discussed that guy we, is we should get if we're getting athletes we should get john elway <laughs> or we should get shanahan i know shanahan does fundraisers for republicans in colorado oh you want Shan? you want you reach out and get shanahan <laughs> yeah, on the program you know someone out there in in colorado you know a republican you know fundraiser world if you know shanahan we got a show from. I want to know what it was like winning those back-to-back Super Bowls. I love it. Nice. I love it. Well, I think we've done it, fellas. Absolutely. That was an absolute banger of an episode, if I may say so myself. Uh, great interview. Won the game. Knocked off Steve Schmidt. So, all wins all around. So, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless. <laughs>